Uh, it's a long passage, so we're not going to read the whole thing, um, but I am going to give you a quick summary in a minute. But John chapter 11, the, the face of resurrection, the story of Lazarus and him being raised from the dead. Uh, skip down to verse 21. I'm going to read 21 through 27, and then we're going to flip to chapter 12 and read 9 through 11. So John 11, verse 21. These are the words of God. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then skip to chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. The large crowd, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing on Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in God, we are grateful today that the Lord Jesus Christ is the face of resurrection. We confess that life and light is only found in him, which means we repent for thinking that we can have life and light on our own terms or somewhere else. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand the very word you have given so given us so that we can grow, that we may grow and mature and be spurred on towards righteousness. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so we've been in John several weeks now, and while we have a whole lot more to cover, more chapters to, do, to get through, we have now come to a passage that stands as a central component to the gospel story. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh sign, the seventh of seven signs that John has given us in his gospel, which means that for us as readers and interpreters, we should be paying very close attention to what is being said. This sign is the turning point of the narrative. It's the turning point of the narrative because it is here that we see most vividly the inevitable consequence of Jesus' work and preaching. What is Jesus' kingdom work, his teaching, his preaching, his miracles are all coming and rushing forward into one great last sign, this moment of Lazarus. Now, to summarize the passage, I'm going to just assume that for the most part, you are, you're mostly familiar with it. So we'll just kind of fill in the gaps as we go. So Lazarus is a man, he's from Bethany, which is just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So keep that on your geographical radar. Mary and her sister Martha, they are both sisters to Lazarus. Mary is the one that we'll meet in the next chapter, the one who anointed Jesus for burial. We'll cover that in two weeks. So anyhow, Lazarus was sick. He was sick and the sisters needed to track Jesus down. So he, re he received word about Lazarus's condition, and he made his position on the matter very clear in verse 4. You can look at there. The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, he says. 
the sickness that Lazarus has is not to end in death, which is interesting because we know Lazarus dies, but for the glory of God. Now, that's the same thing that was said regarding the man born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither, Jesus said, it's for the glory of God. So these things, these incidents, these people, they are all, they're all a drop in the glory of God bucket, and we should probably think of them in those terms. So we're told in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha. He loved Martha and her sister, Mary, of course, and Lazarus. They were as close as family. Whenever Jesus would stay somewhere, he'd be with them in Bethany when he wasn't up north in Galilee region. So oddly enough, though, Jesus receives word and he stays where he is for two days longer. He doesn't go running to heal Lazarus. Lazarus, He actually stays where he's at for two more days. So instead of going straight away to Bethany, which was located in Judea, which has basically now become a war zone for Jesus, it's Grand Central Station and Ground Zero for the problem with the religious leaders, he stays back. Jesus stays back and he delays the trip there, presumably because he's listening to his heavenly father and he knows that his hour has not yet come. That'll make sense when we get to the end of the chapter. So after waiting two days, two more days, they went on their way, but the disciples who are with Jesus are concerned about tensions with the Jewish leaders. They ask him if he really, really wants to go there. Are you sure we should go down to that region? Because things are, you know, not exactly peachy with the religious leaders. So his response in verse 9 is very simple. When it's daytime, we have to work. Uh, The light of the world must keep shining and helping those stuck in darkness to see. His disciples he tells his disciples that Lazarus has only fallen asleep and that he intends to go wake him up, verse 11. They misunderstand him because sleep, sleeping is sometimes, even in Bible times and even today, uh, is used as a euphemism for death. Um, someone, to say someone is sleeping is to say that they are dead or vice versa. So the point is that Jesus is making with this daylight talk is this. The new creation is dawning. Jesus must awaken him from darkness and sleep and bring him back to light and day. This is, uh, was it Micah or Malachi? I I always get those two mixed up. But Jesus is the son of righteousness, S-U-N. He's the son of righteousness, which means that light comes into the world, right? And Jesus awakens people, brings them from darkness. So Jesus clarifies that Lazarus is dead and that it was good that he wasn't there. It was good that Jesus stayed back and that Lazarus died. Boy, that's a cold thing to say. It's good that I stayed. It's good that Lazarus is dead. And I'll tell you why. Because this last sign is not going to be about healing a sick person. It's about testifying to the glory of the Son of God and his kingdom by raising a dead man. That's why it's an important sign. See, Thomas, he speaks up here. He's bold. He's ready to die for this kingdom. And so they head out. Upon arrival, though, we learn then that Lazarus has been dead for four days. There were Jews from Jerusalem, the text says, presumably families, some leaders. They were there to help comfort the mourners. A lot of times in Jewish culture, you could even hire out mourners to come and help you mourn. It was to be a community event in, in large part. 
So Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she heads out to find him. And like is, you know, the whole Mary-Martha thing, Mary stays back, which is to be expected. Martha comes to him and believes that if Jesus had been here sooner, why didn't you get here sooner? If you would have gotten here quicker, Lazarus wouldn't have died. She's essentially laying the blame on, on him. But she trusts Jesus, at least to some degree, and and knows that God grants things to Jesus. How else can we explain the miraculous stuff that we've been studying for 10 chapters? Jesus tells her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha knows this because she knows her Bible. Jewish doctrine in the Old Testament had a resurrection doctrine. Martha knew Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 that there is such thing as a resurrection to come. Everybody was waiting for that. That is, Jesus didn't just invent that. That's a very Jewish doctrine. So Martha knows that she knows there's a final resurrection on the last day. And yet, look at, I want you to see this. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus says something absolutely profound. And it's stunning what he says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Of course, Martha does believe, and she confesses him to be the Christ, the Son of God. So she goes back to find Mary, told Mary that the teacher was looking for her. And of course, Jesus, we're told that Jesus wasn't quite back to the village at that point. So here is the house situation. Martha comes back to the house. Jesus is a ways off. Martha gets back, goes in the house, and gets Mary. The teacher's looking for you. Mary leaves the house, and when Mary left to see Jesus, the people followed her because they assumed that she was going to the tomb to mourn. Where else would you go at a time like this? You go to the tomb to mourn. But instead, check this out, instead of going to the tomb where there is no hope, she went to Jesus and fell at his feet, saying the same thing Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now look at verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. When you think about the humanity of Jesus, a lot of times we um, pietistically articulate Jesus in terms of, well, I know Hebrews says that you know, he's not unable to sympathize with us. So when I'm a little sad because it's rainy, Jesus is there. And that's nice and kind of him. But if you really want to see the rawness of Jesus taking on flesh, this is the verse I would point you to. Out of all the verses, even more so than the verses when he was in the temple causing a stir and driving people out with whips, hitting them. This verse says it all. The words used here in the original language are actually more akin to anger. It's more akin to anger than anything. Jesus is, it says, deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He was angry. He was frustrated. He's angry at the situation. He's angry at death. He's angry at suffering. He's angry that his friends are mourning the loss of someone he loved too. He's angry that they're hurting. So he asks where Lazarus has been laid. And they go to the tomb. And it is here where we find in the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. This is raw emotion. This is full-on human emotion. 
at the reality of death. You know, I've, I've preached many, many funerals and it's very difficult. I mean, with a Christian funeral, it's different because you, you know. But there's such a stark contrast. And then you try your darndest <laughs> to help people see the reality of Jesus and the weight of his glory in a moment when you are at your, your <laughs> you're at like this peak emo- raw emotional state, a funeral. We've all been to funerals, you know, especially someone you love and someone you care about, maybe family. That's a, you don't get any more raw than those moments. And here's Jesus weeping, weeping at what is taking place. He's deeply frustrated with sin. He's deeply upset about the situation. And then debate ensues. Jesus healed the blind man. (laughs) Why couldn't he stop this man from dying? Remember uh, the healing of Jairus? There, There were times when Jesus, even earlier in John, he healed someone who was sick. He didn't have to go there. He didn't even go all the way to see him. Why couldn't he have done it? I mean, the man clearly has these miraculous powers. He could have done this, but he did not do so. So much for an all-powerful God, right? Still angered and deeply moved, they came to the tomb. And at the tomb where Lazarus was laid, the stone was lying against it. And Jesus instructs them to remove the stone, pull it back, move it away. Martha, of course, she's concerned about the situation because, look, it's been four days and there will be a stench. Jesus retorts in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The stone was removed and then we find Jesus praying a public prayer so that all would hear He says in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they might believe that you had sent me. Jesus said that out loud. Now imagine standing there and he's talking about you. He's praying to his father. And I'm glad that you heard me, Father, but I I know you always hear me. But for all these doofuses who don't understand (laughs) my um, translation, you know, he's praying and you're confronted with something very powerful in that moment. Then he says the famous words, Lazarus, come forth. All he said was his name, come forth. And lo and behold, Lazarus comes out of the tomb with the wrappings of cloth still attached to him. And Jesus tells him, look, go unbind the man, let him go. That's no small coincidence. It's a foreshadowing we'll get to in a second. But many believed after seeing this. But some, of course, were skeptical. Some of them went to tell the religious leaders. And the leaders, they get a hold of this news. And now they're concerned. Oh, no, he's done it again. If Jesus keeps gaining a following, this is toward the end of chapter 11, they're having this discussion. If he gets a following, Rome Rome is going to come and squash us. And they're going to ruin what little bit of incremental progress we have made. By the way, the leaders were the first incrementalists. <laughs> Don't let Rome come in. We've, we've gotten all these pro-life laws in the books. Don't let them come. They'll ruin it all. Caiaphas' prophecy 
He prophesied something that he didn't even fully understand. He said it's better, for, it's better to eliminate Jesus and kill him, to have him die, rather than the whole nation perish. And John tells us in verse 51 that that was, in fact, a prophecy, that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not just the nation, but for the whole world, and those who were scattered would then be saved. And then look at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Again, they've been planning and plotting. They've trying to set him up. They're doing this. They're making it happen. And then to make matters worse, we read it earlier in chapter 12. Uh, they want Lazarus dead again <laughs> because many Jews were believing in Jesus. So what do we do with a passage like this? That's the nutshell. What do we do with it? To begin, I want to make sure we're working with the same language that John has been using throughout. John has made it very clear from the very beginning. If you recall, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then he says this in verse 5 of chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When John says that the darkness did not comprehend the light, he's saying that darkness, the darkness does not understand the light. It does not overcome the light. It doesn't catch it. It literally, quite literally means that it can't catch it or seize it. It's trying, darkness is trying to seize the light, but it can't quite get it. You see, pure light drives darkness away, and it is utterly powerless to do anything about it, and that is the kingdom of Christ, the light of the world. You know, you think about the doctrine of Christ's being, the doctrine of post-millennialism, God, Christ being ru ruler right now, and you think about all the texts that you go to to establish this, the most basic one you can go to is when he says, I am light of the world. <laughs> If you really think what John is arguing this entire time about Jesus being light of the world and the darkness cannot overcome it, Jesus is victorious. He will always be victorious because the darkness cannot overcome it. Now, just a few, a few verses after this, John says in John 1, verse 9, he says, there was, a, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The light of the world has given sight to the blind man, now this same light shines in the most darkest place. What is the most darkest place that you can think of on this planet? The tomb. It's the most darkest place. It's the most saddest of realities that we face death. And the light shines into that. Now, there's a great temptation for Christians everywhere to leave things like theology and doctrine in the realm of the immaterial, okay? So I'm going to press on you a minute because this is a huge thing that is so important for us because none of us want to be labeled, labeled a Neoplatonist. <laughs> so you shouldn't, that's a, not a good term. You don't want to be the, you know, Plato dualist where you have the spirit over here, the matter over here, and we don't like the matter, we just want the spiritual that's where you get pietism and other Christian heresies. So there's a temptation for us, for Christians everywhere, to leave theology and doctrinal things, like what we recited earlier, the Apostles' Creed, 
to leave it in the realm of the immaterial. We like to dichotomize our lives, right? The, the material world is over here, my doctrine's over there, in the world of metaphysics, and never shall the two meet. But because God is the transcendent creator, and because we are his creatures, theology isn't something we stand at a distance at and study from afar only in pure conceptual terms. Theology, the doctrines of God, are intimately tied to history and what we do in this world. See, look at, I want you to see this, verse, 20, uh, verse 21 through 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I get that. That's doctrine. It's out there. I mean, it's a, I was taught that from my youth, Martha says. Jesus, though, says to her, I and the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, what Jesus is saying to Martha is this. There is no waiting for the resurrection on the last day. Resurrection is now here. So the resurrection doctrine that's out there in the distance that we believe in and we affirm has now come rushing forward in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. I, he says, I am the resurrection. This is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where a tomb sits empty because a man who was dead was raised. Jesus was not crucified in secret. He didn't, wasn't raised in secret. This was all public, all public. And, and Paul says elsewhere in the book of Acts, Look, these things were not done in a corner. Jesus was crucified with real flesh, with real blood, put in a real tomb with a real stone put over it, and he really did rise on the third day. That tomb is now empty. So that's why doctrine can't just be pushed out into la-la land, where we just think about things, and that's fun to think about, but then over here, you know, I have to cook dinner, so voila, we'll just leave the two alone. So this is what the story of Lazarus is basically hitting at, hinting at, and foreshadowing. The story of Lazarus is only in John's gospel. It's unique to John's gospel, and it serves as the precursor to the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what I mean, and here's how, I, here's how we should think of a passage like this. We might be tempted to reduce this story down to a mere demonstration of the doctrines of grace. You've heard it said before, you know, Lazarus is like us, we're dead, and he raises us by his word. And amen to that. It's absolutely true, right? God in Christ elects his sheep. He calls them out of death. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, out of darkness, and all these things. Absolutely, that's sovereign grace at work. Now, you can see those doctrines in this story. So I want you to understand that's not inherently wrong. It's there. But if that's all we see is doctrines in the air, as important as those things are, then we tend to make this sort of thing cold and abstract. So what we need to consider is that we are all Lazarus, absolutely. We are all dead in sin, and we come alive only in Christ when he calls us. That's absolutely true. None of you came to Christ because you were smart enough, more good-looking, none of that. 
You came to Christ because Christ called you. You heard his voice and your coming was his doing. But there's more to this than all of that. Lazarus is told to come forth from the tomb because Jesus must go forth into the tomb. Lazarus is told to come forth out of the tomb because Jesus must go forth into the tomb. That's how we read this passage. This is a turning point. Everything from here on out is going to the cross and the tomb. That's where the story's headed. So Lazarus must come out. And why does Lazarus need to come out? Because Jesus has to go in. The tomb is for him. See, this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But sometimes we shortchange ourselves on this doctrine. Substitutionary atonement isn't Jesus dying over there so that you could live over here. That is not the doctrine. It's not that he died over there 2,000 years ago so that you could live over here 2,000 years later. That's not it. And it's, it's what many people, unfortunately, think it is, but it's not that at all. It's not that he died so that you didn't have to die. He died so that his death could be your death. Okay, let me explain. For Christians, resurrection isn't merely a doctrine. Resurrection has a face and a name. Resurrection is not merely a doctrine that's out there floating in the clouds. Resurrection has a face and a name. Resurrection has flesh and blood. In fact, resurrection is flesh and blood. Resurrection is not and cannot be reduced to a mere metaphysical doctrine we like to think about once a year at Easter time. No, resurrection is a person. He is Jesus Christ, and that's what he's teaching and demonstrating here. Martha knows the doctrine. She gets it. All the Jews knew the doctrine. Yep, God's going to raise a bunch of people. Yep, the Valley of Dry Bones, that's going to happen. We know that. But what they didn't know was that this doctrine was a person. The Word became flesh and dwelt. See, doctrine has two legs, two feet, right? Ten toes, ten fingers. Theology, the Word of God, has breath in his lungs and hunger in his stomach. This is the face of resurrection. This man, this resurrection man, he has anger in his chest because death and darkness has done nothing but throw its ugly weight around. See, the world had been plunged into sin and death because of Adam's covenantal sin. And Jesus has now come to reclaim it. That's the whole point of the gospel, a reclamation of God's world. That's what it is. And he has come to put an end to all the nonsense, all the sin, all the damaging, far as the curse is found. He's come also to remake man. And the question is, how does he re remake man? How does the second Adam remake mankind? Well, by raising us up. By raising us up from the valley of dry, dry bones. See, resurrection is not, it doesn't just come on the pages of a systematic theology book. It comes in flesh and blood to put the world back to its covenantal order. Resurrection is not just a doctrine we find in the systematic theology book. It comes in flesh and blood to put the world back in its covenantal place. See, Lazarus was a real man who really died and then was really raised to life. But Lazarus did die again. That's terrible to have died twice. But he did. 
And the reason for this is because Lazarus cannot truly live until he dies. He cannot be saved and have resurrection life until he has real covenantal death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. See, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. And only in Christ do we get this problem resolved. Only in Christ do we get a real covenantal death. You see, Adam and Eve, if you recall, they were promised, they were promised death. They were promised that they would be cut off from the covenant and this termination and forfeiture of the covenant would happen in real time, in actual life. Symbolic, symbolically, they were thrown out of the garden, if you recall. So they were cut away from the covenant and because of this, their hearts would eventually stop beating. So when God promised death, he didn't just promise physical death, that was part of it. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, I believe they would have lived forever. But they did sin, and not only were they cut off from the covenant, they would eventually die. The death had two meanings. And for us, all this means is that salvation in Christ, it doesn't mean that Christians don't have to die. That's the escapism thing. It doesn't mean that Christians ha don't have to die. We have to die, and I'm speaking covenantally. It's tied up with the literal, as you see. But we, we have to die just like the unbeliever because, again, in Adam all have sinned and broken covenant and the debt must be paid. That's the, that's the precondition here. But die you must. And here's the thing. Catch this. Either Christ will be your death, your substitutionary atonement, or you will be your own death. And those are the only two options we have. You have to die. We are covenant breakers and either we will die ourselves and perish in hell forever, or Christ will be our death. So those are the only two options we have. Self-atonement is suicide, or you have Christ's atonement, which is life. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. So Lazarus, he had to come out of the tomb so Christ could go in. This is the picture of substitutionary atonement. And Christ entering into the tomb, which is where all of this is headed, means that his death can become then our death. And this means that we have died to the judicial condemnation of the law of God so that we can live to the judicial blessing and demands of the law of God. And that gives us hope. When we come to Christ by his spirit, which is the only way we can come to him, we are brought into this resurrection life, which is why the Bible says that death has had no dominion over him and nor does it have any dominion over us. See, when our hearts stop, 10 out of 10 people die annually. It's going to happen. When that happens in God's good sovereign time, which is what it is, when that happens, we know that we aren't dead forever. We are brought into fullness of life. And that's why we don't mourn as those who have no hope, Paul says. See, that's the face of resurrection. What do you get with just a doctrine that's out there floating around? Not much, but when that doctrine has flesh and blood and he stands before you and he says, I am the resurrection and the life, I am going into that tomb and I'm going to die and I'm going to drag all my people into there so that my death is their death and I will raise them up. That is power. That is hope. That is Easter hope. And there's this interesting part at the end here, and then we're going to close. There's this great irony with Caiaphas. He was the high priest that year. 
as high priest, he unwittingly set forth the work of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's, it's mind-blowing. Caiaphas, I, maybe after all that happened, he probably thought, man, I really shouldn't have said that. <laughs> he has made a prediction. Better for this man to die than for the whole nation. Because if we don't get rid of him, Rome's going to come and kill us. So what do they do? They put the Lamb of God to death. And then this Lamb of God was raised as a lion. And then what did he do? Through Rome, he came and destroyed the nation. See, he has made this, Caiaphas made this prediction. It comes to pass, which is interesting, given the situation with the religious leaders. For them, theology and religious considerations go completely out of the window when political expediency presents itself. Why? Because it's all about power. It's power. You, you've heard it. You know that. Politicians today, pastors you've known, elders, leaders, hungry for power and authority to dictate and demand. It's all about political expediency. It's a shortcut to power, which is why they want Jesus dead. And then they come along and they want Lazarus dead. They want to kill him too. See, Resurrection has a face, and his face, his face is appalling. It's unappealing to those who love darkness and death, and yet the light must shine. Some of you, um, you may be stagnant. You may be in a season of difficulty. You're depressed. I don't know. Maybe you feel like your best, the best word to describe your walk with Jesus right now is just dull. Maybe that's where you're at. You may be in that tough season. Some of it may be because, look, we live in a fallen world and things aren't right. But it also may be because your doctrine doesn't have a face. Your doctrine just is just your doctrine. You haven't walked with Christ. You haven't been in prayer because you don't think you need him and you think you're quite self-sufficient. You've reduced doctrine down to a mere thought to consider instead of a person, the person of Christ, to whom all of you and I are to look to each day. So don't let that short-sightedness stick with you. Don't, don't let the fact that you have a Bible and it's doctrinal and you have some truths and it doesn't quite transfer over into what you have to do tomorrow at work on Monday. Don't settle for a doctrine that doesn't change you. That doesn't, that doesn't give you hope. That doesn't compel you to labor for the glory of Christ in your family and with your children with the mission of our church here in Fauquier County. Don't settle. Come to him. See his face, the face of resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that Christ went to the tomb. We rejoice that your son was determined to go to the cross because he saw joy on the other end of it. We confess before you, Father, that oftentimes... Oftentimes our doctrine is dry, it's dull, when it should be soaked and pointed. We ask and pray that your Spirit would, would open our minds, open our hearts, open our hands, so that we would be transformed by this resurrection life in the here and now. That we would acknowledge and realize that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead resides in us, and He is powerful. So we ask all of this in the name of Christ, who is our resurrection hope. Amen.